Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, imagine if there were a fun way to raise your kids' interest in God. Imagine if there were a fun way to reveal truths of the gospel to non-believers by actually highlighting stories they enjoy, or to learn evidence for Christianity and get answers to the toughest objections. Imagine if there were a fun way to relate important life lessons to people of all ages. Well, this show, ladies and gentlemen, has been about five years in the making because we think there now is a fun way to do that, a way they can get people interested in the stories they've loved their entire lives. And uh, this, this show is five years in the making because my son, Zach Turek, and I actually had an idea to write a book, and it's here now. So let me introduce you to my son, my eldest son, our eldest son, Zach Turek. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, yes, he gets a big round of applause. We bring our own crowd with us. Zach, how are you? I'm good, Dad. How are you today? We are great because, well, you got you to tell the story. Let's, let's start out off in the beginning when you were a kid. You loved movies. What was the first big movie you saw that really got you into movies? The first movie I saw growing up that really piqued my interest was obviously Star Wars. That was a movie that we grew up on, something that we enjoyed together as a family. And the first movie I can remember seeing in a theater and really being excited to go see uh, was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. So the second set of Star Wars movies that came out in the late 90s is really where it took off for me in terms of my interest in movies and the Star Wars universe in general. It took my interest into something that was just kind of, hey, a family pastime to something that was more of a more of a personal interest of mine. And then as I got older, I started reading some of the books and getting into some of the video games and the expanded universe. And that really fed my interest into my teenage years and early 20s as well. And the reason we're talking about movies is because our new book together, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God, comes out this Tuesday, May 3rd. For more on that, go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com. Now, Zach, you're in the United States military. You went right out of college into the military as I did, but you actually went to seminary while you were in the military, in which you still are. You're still in the military. Why did you do that? Why did you go to Southern Evangelical Seminary? Uh... The real reason is because I'm inquisitive by nature. Uh, asking why is really just kind of a big part of uh, how I have come to faith and continued in faith throughout my adult life and trying to figure out answers to life's toughest questions, right? Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And where are we going when we're, go when we're all gone? And seminary, you know, despite being raised kind of in a world of apologetics, was one way where I could personally answer some of those questions myself. And I ended up majoring in philosophy at SES and learned under some great professors like, uh, you know, J.T. Bridges, Richard Howe, Barry Leventhal. I mean, all the names that most of you all who follow SES know and love. And that really kind of 
brought my two worlds together of my love of film as well as my love of philosophy in ways that, uh, you know, a couple of years after we graduated from seminary led to us writing this book as a yeah, way so of, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so how did that come about? Tell our audience how we decided to write this book. Why did we decide to write this book? So I think there's three things that really kind of drove us to this is the first is I spent some time in the Middle East uh, circa 2014 and 2015, and I was at a movie theater watching the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which is a little redacted in the Middle East, but I'm sitting here watching people from probably four or five different Middle Eastern countries sitting right next to me watching up at this same movie, just as excited about it as I was, right? And it was just dubbed in English. And the second one is uh, on a road trip a couple years ago, you and I started kind of talking about ways that we could evangelize and ways that we could integrate more as Christians with the culture. And the third thing, even though I think we had already pitched the book at this point, the third thing that really crystallized how I viewed this subject was when Avengers Endgame came out. And you mm -hmm. can actually go on YouTube and start looking at clips of some of the scenes in there. And in the movie theater, people are reacting to this like their team won the Super Bowl. And that's nuts, <laughs> right? Like people are clapping and uh -huh. cheering and going, you know, most of us have viewed sports as Our as team similar. won, our team won. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Right, and so... <laughs> You know, a lot of us grew up with sports as one of, one of these ways that we try to escape the world. And then the idea that movies, video games, any type of um, narrative storytelling as a way for us to find meaning or, or to define meaning in life in a way to then teach people because of that, right? You know, you always grew up with the analogy that, oh, well, you want to be on a sports team. Well, that teaches you teamwork. It teaches you all these sorts of other things is, well, why not use film or storytelling, or the screen to do the same thing. And then going back throughout my experiences in life, I realized that I'd learned some lessons from these movies that I couldn't quite, had quite stopped to articulate. And that's really mm -hmm. what drove us to write these down in the book, Hollywood Heroes. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it's amazing when you look at the top uh, 25 highest grossing movies of all time, 12 of the top highest grossing movies of all time are superhero type movies, the kind of movies that we investigate and unpack in Hollywood Heroes. And out of the top 25, 23 out of the top 25 have some supernatural or paranormal um, aspect to it. In other words, they're fantasy movies. They're not just movies set in everyday America. They're movies that take you out of this world and take you to another place. And that's why people are so excited about movies like this because that's what they want to do. They want to be taken out of this world. They know this is, is a world full of pain and suffering. It's a broken world. And they want to be rescued from this world and taken somewhere else. And that's why these movies are so popular. It's also a, 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 a situation that parallels the Christian worldview, that we want to be taken out of this world, that Jesus will come, take us out of this world, take us to the promised land. And so even these movie makers that are not Christians, in fact, many of them are anti-Christian, they can't help make movies that parallel the greatest story ever told, 
the story of Jesus. So as we go through our program today, we're going to make some connections between these movies and the Christian worldview and make some connections between these movie heroes and the ultimate hero, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we say the ultimate hero is in the final chapter of the book, Hollywood Heroes. Before we get into that, Zach, though, we got to talk about something that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien told C.S. Lewis that revolutionized Lewis's life and has an implication on uh, the movies that we're going to talk about today. What did he what did Tolkien say to Lewis about the true myth? Yeah, so as many as you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, which is really kind of the, the defining fictional work of the 20th century, it's one of the most popular book series of all time, he told C.S. Lewis on his road to Christianity that Christianity was the true myth. And so what does that mean, right? What did, what did he mean when he said that? Well, growing up in academia, Tolkien understood that myth was was a way that we humans communicated from one thing to another, from one uh, culture to another, or even one group of people to another, right? So growing up, you have Homer's the Iliad, you have all of these mythical stories of things that are larger than life. And what Tolkien mentions to Lewis is that Christianity is like that, except it actually happened. Rather than this mythical story of the, something that totally has no basis in reality, Christianity brings that type of storytelling and puts it in a world that actually took place. The idea that God comes to us in a way that is not like any other religion in world history. And that that is what Tolkien meant when he said that Christianity is the true myth. Yes, it really happened, and as we all know, Lewis then went on to be probably the top apologist of the 20th century, pointing out the evidence that Christ really did rise from the dead. And we're going to talk a lot more about many of these movies, Captain America, Iron Man, even Harry Potter, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, and Zach Turk, back in two. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been shut out of Israel for the past few years, as you know, due to the pandemic. But now that the vaccine mandate is no more, we're heading back with the great Eli Shukran, the real archaeologist of Israel who excavated most of the city of David and discovered the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man. He's going to take us to places other guides can't take us. And it's going to be this September, I want to say from about the 14th to the 24th, somewhere in there. If you go to crossexamine.org uh, and look at events, you should see the trip there. We're only taking one bus. It's going to be an intimate group. So if you want to go back to Israel, in fact, if you've never been there, you got to go there at least once. I know it's cliche, but it's true. It does bring the Bible to life. You can now see things when you're reading the Bible that you couldn't see previously, and we're going to see all the top sites in Israel, so you don't want to miss the trip, check out check it out on our website, crossexamine.org. In fact, Zach might even be with us on that trip. We're trying to work that out. He's been on the trip with me before, and uh, he's uh, his wife may be with him as well, the great Lily Turek, who... Uh, the greatest. Who out, yeah, who actually outranks Zach in... in uh, in uh well she does it in the military but she does at home let's just put it that way how's that all right <laughs> that is 100 <laughs> so, percent true 
That's right. That's right. Now, Zach, let's get back into this. Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. That's our new book coming out this Tuesday. Uh, and uh, by the way, if you're listening to this before the May 3rd, if you go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com and you pre-order the book and you follow the cues on HollywoodHeroesBook.com, we're going to send you the audiobook for free. But you got to prove you've pre-ordered it. So do this before May 3rd if you want to get the audiobook for free. I recorded the audiobook a few months ago. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, so check that all out at HollywoodHeroesBook.com. Uh, Zach, let's talk uh, a little bit about Harry Potter, if we could, because I know some Christians uh, have boycotted Harry Potter or did boycott Harry Potter. Uh, what do you say? Well, let me say from my perspective, I respect whatever parents think is best for their kids. So, you know, if, if you didn't want kids watching Harry Potter, that's fine. I get it. Okay. But I think some Christians may have jumped against Harry Potter too hastily because what goes on in Harry Potter that actually parallels the Christian world, the Christian worldview? Yeah. So let's talk about two things real quick. Uh, and this distinction we make much better in the book, but I want to highlight two things. The first is when we say Harry Potter, we are talking about the original seven books. We are not necessarily talking about any of the new movies that have come out since the real quote unquote Harry Potter books that mm -hmm. we're talking about that don't have the character Harry Potter in them. Um, there's been some you know, more interesting things that J.K. Rowling has uh, taken that series in a direction that we may or may not be comfortable with as Christians. But when we say Harry Potter, we are talking about the original seven books and the original eight movies. And the second thing to highlight there uh, is that before we move into the series itself, that for kids, Harry Potter, in our view, was is an excellent series to have your kids to read, first and foremost, because of three things. The first is that it has an overwhelmingly Christian worldview from the book in general, the idea that we are headed to a place where we are going to be saved right? Saved from evil, saved from suffering, and saved from destruction. It presents essentially a book that has no references to sex in it, meaning mm -hmm. for your, your teenagers, your pre-teenagers, it is a very safe, uh, wholesome book. safe yeah. and wholesome book. Yeah. And the third is that it puts uh, a whole lot of realistic scenarios for interpersonal workings and that the characters in that book really, really play out well life lessons that you want your kids to learn. The idea that there should be positive interaction between friends, the idea that you can deal with conflict in wholesome ways, the idea that your hero should be making solid moral choices during crisis events, right? All of those are very positive examples just generally for our kids to go through. And that as we move forward into specifically how that comes out in a Christian way, we find that the character of Harry Potter exceptionally mirrors Jesus. In mm. fact, it's almost uncanny how close that actually comes to Harry being a one-for-one -one motif of the character of Jesus. And this is a really easy transition for you to take something that your kids enjoy and say, now look how this embodies someone, someone or something that actually happened. Let's right. talk about that. Let's talk okay. about that because that's a good point. And, and we point out in the book, Hollywood Heroes, there are four ways that Harry Potter's life mirrors, parallels the life of Jesus. What are those four ways? So four ways 
and this is easy for you to remember, we'll only talk about probably one in depth, right? But the four ways that Harry Potter exceptionally mirrors the Jesus are these. Number one, he is prophetically foretold to come to save the world. So in the fifth book, the Order of the Phoenix, we start to see this th- this theme that's pieced together over the final three books that Harry Potter's coming to defeat Lord Voldemort, who's the you know the evil villain, the evil bad guy, if you will, Satan figure, yeah, the Satan mm-hmm. figure in Harry Potter that he is pro- foretold prophetically to come to defeat Lord Voldemort. Mm-hmm. The second, before he's born, before, before he's born. he before yeah. he is born, right? Yeah. And it takes mm-hmm. a couple of books to actually piece out what that prophecy actually says. But when you finally put it all together and we get the full context, it tells us that Harry is coming to defeat Lord Voldemort and that neither can live while the other survives. And mm. so Harry not only knows that he has come to defeat Lord Voldemort, but that it, only one of them is going to survive the encounter. And that's right. important a little bit later on. The second thing is that Harry lives a morally upstanding life. Not that he's perfect, but as I mentioned before, that he makes the right decision under pressure. Always. And he he has to do that in order to save the world. Correct. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, what's number three? And the third is that Harry Potter has to sacrifice himself for the greater good, right? So that everyone else might live. That Harry Potter willingly, like I mentioned, that prophecy says, neither can live while the other survives. Harry Potter takes that to mean that he has to sacrifice himself in order to defeat Voldemort. And he does. Mm -hmm. And he walks into that willingly. All right. And number four? Number four is that he is raised from the dead. Right? Wow. And how is he raised (laughs) from the dead? He Mm -hmm. comes back and guess what? Lo and behold... Death has no sting, right? Harry Potter, at the end of the books, is called, quote-unquote, the master of death. He masters all three of the Deathly Hallows in the same way that we would call Jesus the master of death, right? As we as I read and understand from the Bible, Harry Potter has almost the exact same things said about him as Jesus does, right? Our, our, our imagery from Jesus is that he is the lamb that is led to slaughter. And Harry mm-hmm. Potter, he's mentioned as, oh, you, you, you sacrificed him, Dumbledore, as a pig. For slaughter, that knowingly this was going to happen, and Harry does it willingly. And again, mm-hmm. that is almost a one-for-one reimagining of the life and times of Jesus, if you look at it closely. You know, uh, I know it might be that J.K. Rowling did not reveal this early on in the series. In fact, she said she didn't want to reveal some of this early on in the series, that it it followed the Bible to a certain extent, because she didn't want people to know where the story was going. But here's what Rowling said in an interview. She said, the entire series can be epitomized by two Bible verses, which are found in the books and, of course, in the movies as well. The first is... The last enemy to be to be destroyed is death. That's from 1 Corinthians 13, 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And the second Bible verse that epitomizes the series is where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But she didn't want to reveal that because she thought it would tip people off. But Zach, we got to talk a little bit about the, the so-called occult in this movie. This is why Christians have said, look, I can't be a part of, I, can't, I don't want my kids involved because they're getting involved in the occult. Uh, have Christians been consistent on this or not? Because I noticed that Christians like other movies that have the occult, uh, but they don't like Harry Potter. Why is that? Well, I'd say two things to that. The first is that I think it's hard to argue that the occult 
is in Harry Potter, right? Magic, in this case, is a figment of J.K. Rowling's imagination, and nowhere in the Harry Potter books is this presented as something that is real. Mm -hmm. That's number one, right? So when we have this, you know, this discussion in the Old Testament telling the Israelites to stay away from magic, and then you see Saul go to talk to the necromancer to bring up Samuel, right? That's something that actually happens. Whereas in Harry Potter, no one is no one is saying that you, you your kid, can go get on a broom and fly away themselves. Now, that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that we shouldn't have some skepticism about that, but it's not presented as real. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that we want to talk about is that, again, if it's not real— what are we so afraid of, particularly when we take magic in other forms of Christian-type literature, let's say the Chronicles of Narnia or the mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings that Christians mm -hmm. generally accept, and then say, well, okay, well, why do we have such a double standard here? Gandalf, who's widely seen as a Jesus or prophetic-type figure in Lord of the Rings, is a wizard. That's literally what he's called. Why are, right. we, why are we so objective about Harry Potter? It usually mm. means, in my experience, that we haven't done enough homework to realize the positive implications that we get out of Harry Potter as well. In fact, according to J.K. Rowling, she says that the reason magic is in the movies, she doesn't, as Zach just said, she doesn't really think this kind of magic actually exists. But she says it, uh, magic provides powerless children with the power they have nowhere else. It lifts the imagination. I'm paraphrasing her right now. She says, but magic isn't the center of the story. Human nature is. In fact, here's a quote from her. She says, Harry enters this magical world and he thinks it will be an escape, but it's not. Human nature is human nature, whether or not you can use a wand. So it's really the moral development of Harry Potter that is required for him to actually be the savior of the world, just like he, Jesus has to have uh, moral perfection in the real world in order to do this. Harry Potter has to be morally sound in order to pull this off, and then he has to die, and then he has to rise again, which is exactly what happens, of course, with Jesus in the real world. So it might be, again, I respect parents, whatever they want to do, I get it, okay? But it might be, some parents may have jumped the gun on this because these stories are extremely well-written, and look, there are thousands of stories out there with magic in them that don't go anywhere. Why, why has Rowling been so successful, Zach? Yeah, the reason why is because she's a fantastic storyteller. If you mm -hmm. go back and look, it's the characters that are compelling in Harry Potter. The magic is just a fulcrum by which Rowling tells a story, right? No one is going to be interested in a story where it's just a bunch of teenagers walking around a high school. But if you can say, oh, well, that teenager can fly on a broom... Now, all of a sudden, the experience that that character has is much more intriguing. But it's still the same thing, right? What are we seeing? We are seeing Harry put in a series of moral situations and then have to decide how to react. And the other mm. thing to highlight, too, is that most of the magic terminology in Harry Potter is made up, right? Yeah, that's right. W words like acromantula. Well, that doesn't exist in the occult anywhere. It's mm -hmm. literally it's something that she made up. All right, what about Star Wars? What about Captain America? What about Iron Man? What about Batman? What about Wonder Woman? What about Lord of the Rings? We got a lot more to talk about. We're not going to get to it all, obviously. If you really want to get into it, you need to get the new book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God, written by me, Frank Turk, and my son, Zach Turk. We're back in two minutes with a lot more. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. And if you haven't downloaded our free app yet, why not? Over 300,000 people have. Two words in the app store, Cross Examined. Has our TV show on there that you can stream live on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as this podcast. By the way, if you're listening to this on American Family Radio, this is a podcast as well. So if you want to hear this again or recommend it to somebody, just go to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. It's on the homepage of the AFA website, too. The great folks at AFA uh, carry this. But Zach, let me go back to my son, Zach Turek, author, uh, co-author with me of the new book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. Who is your favorite uh, superhero and why? Well, if we're talking about superheroes, that narrows the, char- the character list down a little bit. But my favorite right now, at least, is Captain America. That's changed a couple of times over the course of my adult life. And then uh, it used to be Batman, but kind of having seen Steve Rogers play out in the Avengers movies, I think he would he is probably my current favorite. How about okay, you? Why? Why, let's, let me ask you why, though. Why, why Captain America? Then, um, then you can ask me. Well, first, because I, I was a captain for six years. So, That's right. you know, I, I share <laughs> some kinship Force, with yeah. him. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that was always just kind of a funny thing that I thought, you know, we had a little bit in common. And obviously he's much mm-hmm. better a captain than I ever was. Um, but he really kind of just embodies a whole lot of uh, character traits that we really want to see, I think, uh, out of our leaders. Right. He is mm-hmm. morally upright. He is steadfast. He is willing to lead a team. He's willing to sacrifice. He doesn't need to be always the guy that's front and center. Those are those are leadership traits that we really, really, uh, I think we could use a lot more of in general across mm-hmm. you know a variety right. of a variety of portions of our society. And we'll talk yeah, more my, about him later, I'm sure. But yeah, mine is uh, Tony Stark and Iron Man, and the reason I like well, first of all, as we point out in the book. There couldn't have been a better casting for uh, Tony Stark than Robert Downey Jr. Uh, because Robert Downey Jr. had events in his life that pretty much are like the events of Tony Stark. And yeah. we, we point out what they are in the book. Uh, but he, I think he just played the character perfectly. And where uh, Steve Rogers or Captain America is morally upright all the time... When you look at somebody like Tony Stark, you don't know what he's going to do, right? Mm-hmm. Because early on, he's not a hero, right? He's a billionaire, playboy, amoral arms dealer. He's going to be the last guy that's going to sacrifice himself to save the world. But then he goes on this character journey over several movies to where he, spoiler alert, ultimately does do that. And uh, I just I just love the character. I also think there's something in the Iron Man series that is a great visual picture for everyone, particularly young people. For those of you not familiar with the, the, the Tony Stark Iron Man story, as I said, he's kind of an amoral arms dealer. At one point, one of his own weapons detonates near him, and he actually gets a lot of shrapnel in his chest in order to survive they have to insert a device right in the center of his chest to prevent his heart from getting any of this encroaching shrapnel in it. So this device is guarding his heart. Now, this is a wonderful illustration of what I think is probably the top 
life lesson that young people today and even older people need to learn. And that is, rather than follow your heart, which is what the culture says, you need to guard your heart. This is what Proverbs 4.23 says. It says, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. In fact, it, it, it puts it even more starkly. It says, above <laughs> all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. And this visual in Tony Stark's life this device in his chest that's guarding his heart reminds him that, first of all, life is fragile. He needs to guard his heart. But it should remind us, too, that we need to guard our heart. We can't follow our heart. If, you know, Tony Stark is following his heart, Zach. He's following it everywhere. He's, he's got everything that we think a man would want. He's got the girl. He's got the money. He's got the power. He's, he's doing things on his terms. And yet he's still not happy. Why do you think he's not happy? He's not happy because he has nothing, everything to live with, but nothing to live for. And that's really kind of the story that we see play out across all of the Avengers movies until the very last one, right? He mm. starts off and he's self-described, right? I, I'm a billionaire playboy philanthropist. He's talking about how many Maxim cover models he's sleeping with in the first movie. And then he ends up, what do we see him in Avengers Endgame? He has a family. He's married. He has a daughter. And he's worried about his daughter's future. Right. I mean, that's really kind of the center of his decision making in Avengers Endgame is how am I going to make sure that my family is going to be here when I'm gone? Because I might be gone at the end of this. Right. And that really kind of kind of takes him into a place that is going to allow him to sacrifice himself for everyone else, not mm. just his family, but everyone else that someone else needs to have a family, too. Right. That he's not the only one anymore. That's go that is going to experience this. Yeah, Tony Stark is living the American dream, but he's not happy. And you know, it, it's kind of a metaphor for uh, uh, he's kind of a metaphor for America because we think we're going to get happy by getting the big three: sex, money, and power. And we 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 can even get all those things, and we can still be empty. In fact, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, said in an interview that the Tony Stark character has everything, but he's spiritually dead inside. He's empty. He doesn't even know what his identity is. And uh, so he goes on a long journey of discovering his identity. But friends, if, if sex, money, and power made uh, you happy, then America would be the happiest place in the world. But it's not. We lead the world in suicide. We lead the world in drug use. We lead the wor world in divorce. All signs of unhappiness. And so Tony Stark is a great lesson for us. It's kind of the Ecclesiastes of the uh, of the movie series, you know, it, Tony Stark gets to the point. He goes like, "What's the use? Why? 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 I have all this stuff, but I'm still not happy." Uh, and it's not until he gets a real purpose that he becomes a hero. And his ex said, "Spoiler alert: sacrifices himself to 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 beat Thanos and save the world." But tragically, he dies in the process. So. Mm -hmm. I love the Tony Stark character. You want to say something else about that, Zach? Well, I say he says literally, I, I have all this stuff and I can't sleep. Yeah, that's right. right? Like that's that's a night. line in <laughs> Iron Man 3. He's like, I, I uh -huh. can't even sleep. I don't know what's wrong with me. And that uh -huh. is the, the journey that we see him go on. Yeah, you ought to ask your kids, any kids that are that that love the Iron Man series, ladies and gentlemen, ask them, why is Tony Stark not happy? Just ask him that. He's got everything that we think we want, and he's still not happy. Mm -hmm. By the way, at the end of every chapter of the Hollywood Heroes book, we have five questions that are good for small group study or they're good for talking to your kids or in a youth group or, you know, what, whatever, just personal reflection. 
because there are so many, not only theological lessons in these movies, there are biblical life lessons in these movies. And ladies and gentlemen, we are not saying that these life, life easy for me to say today, life <laughs> lessons were intentionally put in by the directors in all cases. I think sometimes they just put them in because they realized they were true, even though they didn't know they came from the Bible. Look, these people are living in God's world, and they know what works. They know what what sells. They know. I mean, imagine, Zach, imagine if Tony Stark got to the end of, of uh, Endgame, and he could have taken Thanos out, and he said, you know what? I'm just going to follow my heart and go back to Pepper. Would anybody be, <laughs> would yeah. anybody be inspired by that? And that's really where it comes back, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what points us to the character as something that we want. A guy who has everything. He's got mm -hmm. all the money. He's got all the technology. He has the family. We want someone like that who is still willing to, at the snap of their fingers, save their life or sacrifice themselves to save everyone else. It's one mm -hmm. of the reasons why Bruce Wayne is such a compelling character as well when we talk about Batman. Here is this guy who literally has everything, and he's willing to throw his life away night after night after night after night, throwing his body away to sacrifice himself for us. That's something that we want, mm -hmm. right? And that's why it sells. Well, in fact, let's talk about Batman, because Batman, mm -hmm. we have a chapter on Batman, and Superman's in this chapter too. They're kind of related here. Mm -hmm. But there's one thing about, first of all, the Batman character has changed over the years. For those who are as old as I am, you remember the Adam West Batman, the real campy, you know, mm -hmm. where Biff, boom, yeah, pow, you know, he, he and Robin would take out these. Bat these, shark repellent and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, the bat that. shark yeah. repellent was always my favorite thing. You guys remember, are you guys old enough to remember this? The bat <laughs> shark, he and Robin are like, are like water skiing or something. And suddenly mm -hmm. there's a shark and somehow out of his, his utility belt, which is two inches wide, <laughs> he pulls out an aerosol can that's a foot long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and he just sprays a little bit of shark repellent and the shark goes away. He mm -hmm. also has in this utility belt and in a, a, a shield, a, a five foot by four foot bulletproof shield that somehow he unfolds out of this thing. And, uh, and the bad guys only shoot the shield. They don't try and shoot his feet or shoot past him or around him. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, that's not the kind of Batman we're talking about. We're talking mm -hmm. about the Batman of the more recent movies. And ba Zach, uh, the Batman in the more recent movies has a very realistic view of human nature. How so? It absolutely does. And one of the things that really is unique about Batman, although it it's, stays the same for some other comic book heroes too, is this idea that Batman is going to consistently go on and on and on and never win, right? Every time he captures a villain, every time he catches a criminal, every time he saves the day, there's this, there's this immediacy that he is going to have to turn around and do it again the next night. And why? Because in a sense, he's fighting against human nature, right? That no matter how much bad he eradicates, there's going to be something more. And then even more interesting about Batman is if you sit down and think about him, is that how well he understands his own nature. Because mm. Batman, unlike uh, some other superheroes, has a very strict set of rules that he forces himself to abide by. And that when he deviates from them or starts to or even thinks about it, you start to see 
increasing consequences for it. So Batman never takes a life. Batman always turns his uh, the people he captures over to the police. And when he starts to uh, maybe think about violating, or in some cases, depending on which movie series or comic book series you see, actually violate those things, we see problems start to pop up. And that's why Batman is such a compelling uh illustration of human nature to the to also to the point that they've had some fantastic directors and movies put scenarios into that i can't you know the dark knight i think is a really really great example of this the second of the christopher nolan movies where you see this it's called the prisoner's dilemma which is a really famous uh, philosophical dilemma where you have uh, a bunch of criminals on a boat with a bomb that can blow up a a bunch of quote-unquote innocent people on the other boat, and then how that scenario plays out throughout the movie is really, really interesting. And it takes, takes the discussion into some really interesting places that you might not think about otherwise. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about Batman. We may get into Wonder Woman, Lord of the Rings, Captain America. Those are all the movie franchises we cover in the book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. It comes out this Tuesday, May 3rd. If you want to get the audio version for free, pre-order it and go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com. Follow the cues. We're back in two minutes with more. Don't go anywhere. We're talking about good things coming out of Hollywood today. The book Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God, coming out this Tuesday. Go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com. We've been talking about uh, famous movie series, things like Captain America, Iron Man. We talked a little bit about Batman. We've got so many more so many more to cover, and we cover so many in the book. Let's talk a little bit about Lord of the Rings, if we could, Zach. I'm with my son, Zach Turk, co-author of the book Hollywood Heroes. Uh, that we, we, we say in the introduction of the book, Hollywood Heroes, that most of these movies weren't made with Christianity in mind explicitly. But there is a series that was written with Christianity in mind. In fact, Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, says that this work, Lord of the Rings, is fundamentally a religious and Catholic work. He was a very devout Catholic. How did he fold in Christianity into this series, Zach? How does he go about doing it? You know, the interesting thing about this is that Tolkien very intentionally did not, or at least not in the way that you would expect, right? So for those of you that, as an example, are familiar with C.S. Lewis's work, The Chronicles of Narnia, that's an example of what we would call Christian allegory. So Lewis is very intentionally teasing out Christian motifs in a way that is obvious, right? Aslan, for an example, is a a very, very easy uh, one-to-one comparison of Jesus. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien intentionally removes any type, at least in his mind, any type of direct reference to Christianity. And what he does instead is show us, via several different characters, some very broad Christian themes that if you know what to look for, you'll find. But otherwise, what he's really doing is just telling us a great and fantastic story Mm -hmm. in a way that if you know what to look for, it's going to show what Tolkien would call providence, right? The Mm -hmm. idea that there is a greater power at work. And we see this in a couple of different places, but mainly at the very end, this idea that if you remember at the end of Return of the King, Frodo fails in his mission to destroy the ring. 
mm-hmm. right? And that's something that gets lost on a lot of people if you're not careful. And then what we see happen is a series of events that have taken place throughout the books or in the movies is that the character of Gollum is advised by Gandalf originally to Frodo to Frodo to have mercy on him. And Frodo continues to show mercy on this character, Gollum, this evil character that is only after the ring. And we see that basically throughout the, the story that Frodo continues to let this character live despite multiple chances to basically kill him. And despite the fact that Gollum has tried to kill him more than once. <laughs> yeah, killed Frodo more than once. That's right. <laughs> throughout yeah. throughout the story as well. Mm-hmm. And then what do we see? Well, as Frodo gets to Mount Doom and is trying to destroy the ring, he decides, actually, you know what? I'm going to keep it myself. That's right. It's, the ring is mine. The ring is mine. <laughs> right? And what do we happen? Well, Gollum sneaks up on him and bites the ring off of his finger. I want my precious. That's right. He's got his precious, finally. Mm-hmm. And he trips and falls, and the ring falls into the lava and, and the fires of Mount Doom, and then everything works Spoiler out. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. And what is that? That is that is an example of providence. The idea that there is a greater power at work pushing, despite all evidence to the contrary, pushing for a good outcome that uh, despite all of our works to the contrary, which were many, Frodo does a fantastic job throughout the story. He's ultimately not good enough. So what happens? Providence steps in and pushes us over the edge to the point where we can finish with a happy ending. Mm-hmm. That despite all of our best efforts, we're not enough. Now, Tolkien said that the hero of the Lord of the Rings series is actually Sam. It is. You know, who, who carries Frodo when Frodo can't go any further. But talk a little bit, Zach, about how Tolkien uses weakness in order to uh, save the world and how that parallels Christianity. Yeah, so this is really interesting, and Tolkien has a couple of very unorthodox things that he does in the story, and one of these is this idea that the hobbits, the small people, if you will, will save the day. And it's it's almost unfathomable when the story starts. Like, how is this going to happen, right? I mean, let's just, at, at, at a broad scale, see what actually happens, right? So imagine you're three feet tall, mm-hmm. you walk around barefoot, you have no combat expertise, you're, the things that you enjoy doing are basically eat, eating, drinking, and being merry. You are a homebody. You don't want to go anywhere. And then someone walks up to you and says, hey, I'm going to hand you this magical object. Uh, I need you to take it to a faraway land. You don't know where it is, actually, by the way. And you're never really going to have a, 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 an idea without someone pointing you in the right direction. Uh, the entirety of the time that you're going to do so, people are going to try to kill you. People want the object that you have. It's actually the most important object in the universe. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to do this basically through your own, if you want to call it, sheer willpower in the mm-hmm. end. And oh, by the way, you're not particularly smart either. So you don't actually have all of the details together. Someone smarter than you has that as well. And you're like, well, how are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. And why right? are we going to do it? And yeah. why are we going to do it? And why, why of all the people we could pick to do this thing, this mm-hmm. the most important task in the entire world that Tolkien has created. Why are we going to rely on this small group of people to accomplish that goal? Mm. And what Tolkien stresses over and over again is the idea of weakness being a sense, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, a strength. The mm-hmm. idea that Frodo, as an example, knows what he is capable of and what he is not and is willing to ask for help repeatedly over and over again. You see him, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. Can you mm-hmm. help me? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this idea that the ring 
somehow doesn't seem to have the same appeal uh, or, or power over him that it would over, let's say, one of the stronger men or wizards, right? right? right. That Frodo can resist the ring's temptation because he doesn't have ambitions like some of the other people do. And that mm. their hobbits are naturally sturdy and resistant to the ring's power. And this this ends up, if you look at how the story plays out over the end, becomes a huge part of how Gandalf's ultimate strategy plays out, is that the, the hobbits carry, in a way that Sauron doesn't expect, the ring all the way up until Mount Doom. And yes, they do fail eventually, but none of the other characters could have even gotten remotely that far. Mm, mm. And at the end, you see, after everything's said and done, King Aragorn, who is the return of the king, that's who it's about, right? Ends up bowing to the hobbits and saying, my friends, you bow to no one. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they meekly went about their task as best they could. Yes. And in the Bible, of course, the weak are the ones that uh, save the world. Jesus goes to the cross in weakness. Of course, he could have used his power if he wanted to, but that would have defeated his purpose. Think about all the weak characters that God uses in the Bible. Peter. Look, Peter denies Christ three times, you know, he, after saying he wouldn't, he runs away at the cross, you know, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. Mark, Mark couldn't even complete a, a missionary journey with Paul. Paul got so annoyed with him, he said, I'm not taking you again. What does he wind up doing? He winds up writing a gospel. Matthew's a tax collector, nobody likes him, he writes a gospel. John's just a teenager, but he hangs with Jesus the whole time, later writes a gospel in several other books. Paul says, when I'm weak, I am strong. Right. Why, why does he say that? Because when you're weak, you don't depend on yourself. You get help from others. You get help from God. And of course, Frodo gets help from mostly Gandalf. And it's interesting in this uh, in this series, Zach, as you point out, uh, Tolkien doesn't have one Christ figure. He has at least three and they don't have all the same characteristics. It's Gandalf, Aragorn and Frodo. Mm-hmm. And they they kind of divide up the characteristics. And it's almost like the Trinity because Gandalf, he plans salvation. Frodo accomplishes salvation. And Aragorn inspires salvation in the people. And so you got kind of like a, a Father, Son, Holy Spirit thing going on here in the Lord of the Rings series. And each one of those characters have elements of Christ, but not not all of them. But it, Ab- it, it, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, a- absolutely. And it's it's really interesting to watch Tolkien pull it all together, mm-hmm. right? Because how you see um, and how we see Aragorn as an example, or Gandalf, since we've already talked about Frodo, you see some things that kind of lead you down a certain path initially. It's like, oh, well, Gandalf, Gandalf dies and resurrects. Okay, well, mm-hmm. that's really interesting, but then when you look at how the rest of the series plays out, it's actually Gandalf guiding behind the scenes Aragorn and Frodo towards the ultimate resolution of the conflict. And then mm-hmm. when we look at our idea of what a king is, we see that from Aragorn, but and not, again, not in a way that we expect, right? We see in Lord of the Rings, how is Aragorn described? The hands of the king are hands of a healer. Mm-hmm. Aragorn has a ton of martial prowess and he wins some battles too, but two things that we see from him. Number one, the healer reference that I first mentioned. And then number two, actually his greatest battle, he fights expecting to lose. Mm. He fights expecting to sacrifice himself for Frodo so that Frodo 
right. can achieve their their end goal. And that, again, as a king, he is willing to sacrifice himself for everyone else, which is exactly what we want to see out of our king. Yeah, and I mean, there's so Lord of the Rings is so rich. Uh, we obviously have a whole chapter on it, uh, and there's so much to learn here. But I, I just love that speech that Aragorn has when he's trying to inspire a inferior force to stand up to, to stand up to Sauron's orcs, where he says, he, he says. Uh, the day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day, an hour of wolves and shattered shields, when the age of men comes crumbling down. But not this day. This day we fight by all that you hold dear on this good earth. I bid you stand, men of the West. And he does stand just in, for just enough time to get the ring into the lava, and then, of course, all of the forces of uh, Sauron evaporate, and uh, the, it was Frodo that saved the day with the help of Aragorn and, of course, Gandalf. And there's so much more to talk about, Zach. We're going to have to do another program because we didn't talk anything about Star Wars. We didn't talk anything about Wonder Woman. We could have talked a lot more about these other, uh, other movies. So thanks for being on, my son. Love you, Dad. Thanks for having right. me. Love you, too. We're going to do more of this. Check out the book, ladies and gentlemen, Hollywood Heroes at HollywoodHeroesBook.com. HollywoodHeroesBook.com. Get it, pre-order it before the third, and get the audio book for free, and we'll see you here next week. God bless.